Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Many patients come to my practice thinking they have to stop wearing their contact lenses due to dry eye discomfort, but that's not the case. With products and services offered through ABB Optical's dry eye portfolio, like Regenerize Light, a biologic eye drop, I can help patients manage their dry eye symptoms and ship dry eye products directly through ABB, allowing me to have happy, satisfied patients. Interested in learning more? Visit abboptical.com forward slash dry eye. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Art Epstein. In this episode, Dr. Epstein discusses the causes of dry eye and the newest technology to help in the diagnosis of this very ubiquitous disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. How about LASIK? Oh, it's so, a, it's a, <laughs> you know, I, I, I got an, um, an email today from uh, someone on LinkedIn who was offering uh, to help me promote LASIK in my practice. Uh, and uh, I wrote back and I said, um, you know, my practice is limited to dry eye and ocular surface disease. Uh, and I recently discovered because we're doing a clinical trial and we needed to screen patients that a much larger proportion of the patients that I thought uh, had LASIK in my practice, it was an underestimation that a significant percentage of my patients, especially the patients in their you know, four, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, some even 60s have had LASIK. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, we go back to the observation that the cornea has more nerves than any other tissue in the body. LASIK happens to make an incision uh, along a plane where most of the nerves exist. So you're basically severing the nerve connections that eventually run through uh, the eye, uh, end up going through a nerve called the trigeminal nerve up to the brain where there's a very large amount of processing that occurs, which then exerts control over these numerous functions that maintain the ocular surface. Now, some of the nerves recover uh, in some patients and they do okay. And uh, some of the patients probably have redundant nerves or the incision based on their prescription and the technique and the microkeratome or the, la the laser, the femtosecond laser used they don't lose as many nerves, but an incredibly large number of patients suffer from very severe dry eye because essentially the control mechanism has been destroyed. And since we lose nerves over time anyway, this is something that you know, comes uh, back uh, stronger and stronger each year. So they start off with a little dryness, it gets better, they recover, uh, and, uh, and eventually we can reach a point where it becomes really problematic. So we don't uh, co-manage LASIK. We don't advise LASIK. Uh, in fact, we recommend against LASIK. 
uh, I think we'll look back um, at LASIK, even though we've solved many of the optical problems as you know, one of those things that maybe we should have given more thought to before we began slicing through the cornea. Uh, I'm sure I'm not gonna make a lot of friends by saying that, but uh, just from you know, the risk of very, very severe dry eye outcomes, uh, I would, and, and you know, severe to the point of all of the problems you alluded to before, the psychological problems, the functional problems. You know, I, you know, my advice is generally um, think twice before you think of LASIK. And you're a dry eye center, so you see some very tough dry eye patients who I'm sure had some severe side effects from LASIK. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, in fact, um, you know, very early, I, you know, I, I was not a big fan of LASIK, although I know this is going to sound strange, but I was a center director for TLC for a while. You know, there was a point where I said, maybe I'm being too judgmental and, and you know, just not, you know, moving ahead with technology. But, you know, over the, and, and I was very, a very vocal um, uh, advocate for patients who had been damaged by LASIK. Uh, you know, I was on the board of Surgical Eyes, uh, which was a foundation that was early on. And, you know, if you search the internet, you'll see all kinds of interesting quotes of mine about, you know, the dangers of LASIK and the, you know, psychological impact. Most of those problems, not all, but most of those problems have been solved with, you know, improved technology and, and uh, better algorithms for treating the patients. But the dry eye issue, um, you know, certainly has not uh, you know, I, I understand why, you know, some of my ophthalmology colleagues who do a lot of LASIK like it because, you know, the patients are delighted with the visual outcome, but, you know, that's not my area of concern. I, I have to deal with the aftermath in terms of dry eye. And, and that's a, it's a terrible, you know, it's a terrible thing to have to deal with as a, a patient who's experiencing it. How about meibomian gland dysfunction, the vicious cycle of dry eye? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. You know, in, in fact, one of the big problems we have in dry eye is that there's so many different theories. In fact, I wrote, you know, I write a weekly editorial, as I, I know you know. Uh, and, you know, a couple months ago, I wrote about, you know, how confused we all are because, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have inflammatory dry eye and we have meibomian gland dysfunction and we have, uh, uh, you know, we have aqueous deficient and we have evaporative and we have lacrimal functional unit dysfunction. And we have, I mean, there's a million and one theories, you know, some of which are, you know, commercial in origin, you know, uh, you know, companies trying to come up with rationales to justify the use of their, their medications or products or whatever. But a lot of them, you know, are pieces uh, of a puzzle, you know, some cases, big pieces, and other cases, very, very small pieces. And it's hard to recognize unless you're so immersed in it, that that's all you do. And then you can kind of figure it out because you have to uh, that, you know, these pieces all belong there and they have to be placed in, in the right sequence and order. Uh, Meibomian gland dysfunction was first described in 1980. So we're, I guess, what, at the 40th, uh, just past the 40th anniversary uh, by a brilliant uh, colleague, an optometrist, uh, Dr. Donald Korb, uh, who's still active in uh, Boston. Uh, I've had the pleasure of knowing Donald for many years and, uh, you know, consider him a mentor. I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today, uh, and many of us wouldn't be if it wasn't uh, for him, you know, his observational skills and his scientific uh, acumen. Uh, and what he recognized in his particular case was that in contact lens wearers who would become uh, dysfunctional, who would become intolerant, many of them had uh, dysfunction uh, or damage to these glands that are present in both upper and lower lid. They run radially up and you know through uh, you know across well, not across the lids but down the lids 
on the inside, the innermost surface of the lid. Uh, and uh, every time we blink, we pressurize them. Uh, we have little muscles uh, that uh, create uh, that pressure. If they're not so little, they're called the orbicularis. Uh, and uh, the glands are sealed off by smaller muscles called the muscles of realin. Uh, and uh, the pressure builds until the upper and lower lid hit uh, and the little valves open and the oil inside is released and the upper lid as it sweeps upward spreads the oil to cover the entire surface. Uh, when it's working well, it's uh, almost like taking a bowl of water. Uh, if you left the bowl of water on the table in Phoenix uh, and came back a day later, it would have evaporated away. If you took a bowl of water and uh, did the same thing, except took a bottle of Wesson oil and dumped half of it on top of the water, uh, it would probably last for about two or three weeks. And if you dumped the entire bottle of Wesson oil, uh, it would last probably for three or four months, maybe even maybe even six months, maybe even a little longer. Uh, the lipid, the oil creates an evaporative barrier and because oil sticks to oil, it creates surface tension and structure. Plus the oils are very complex, you know, so that some of the oils actually stick to the underlying moisture. Uh, my bombing gland dysfunction describes uh, progressive damage and loss of the glands, uh, progressive dysfunction of the glands. You can have glands that are still present, but none, not functioning. Uh, and this is something that we see increasingly more often because I think this is what's directly associated with uh, modern times and computer use and visual tasking that you know most normal people uh, you know go through. The people who sit in front of computers, the accountants, the computer workers, uh, their meibomian glands begin to suffer as the glands back up. The oil becomes more and more saturated. Eventually, the oil becomes rancid, so it gets from baby oil consistency to kind of a honey consistency to a you know, thicker honey to, uh, you know, a pasty, eventually even a waxy consistency. Eventually it becomes rancid and the body sends in inflammatory cells to remove this rancid oil and unfortunately takes gland tissue with it. Uh, and then we end up with, you know, really end stage meibomian gland dysfunction or meibomian gland disease. And that in a nutshell is MGD. Well, that brings us to inflammation. You mentioned it before. Do you think inflammation is the cause of dry eye? No, that, that's a great question. Well, if, you, if you're a company that sells an anti-inflammatory, it certainly is. Uh, and if you are a, a clinician, it can be. Uh, and so what I mean by that, it's, kind of, it's, it's actually interesting. I think we're at a turning point right now. Uh, so a lot of people, you know, for quite some time, because there was a tremendous amount of research and focus and lecture uh, material focused on inflammation, some people still say, uh, dry eye is an inflammatory disease. We can even measure inflammatory markers. And the answer is, yes, I think dry eye can be an inflammatory disease, but under two specific conditions, which is not a bad thing because frankly, if you are a company that makes uh, an anti-inflammatory, either a medication or you know, something uh, uh, otherwise that you know, can reduce inflammation, uh, it's, it's still a tremendous opportunity because we have so much, you know, dry eye, quote unquote, dry eye. So in the first instance, you know, as I kind of alluded to before, homeostasis with the body's you know, intense focus on maintaining function and balance uh, works reasonably well for most of us most of the time until we reach a point where it doesn't. And when it doesn't work, finally the body is you know, quite intelligent you know, in, its, in its construction and design. Then the body says, you know, hey, I can't manage this anymore. I need help. So it calls forth in, inflammation. 
And in fact, it does it in a number of different ways. It mobilizes inflammatory mediators or signaling molecules. So the rest of the body, you know, particularly through the circulatory system, sends in T cells and eosinophils and so on. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that form of inflammation is somewhat problematic because like all inflammation, once you open the door, you, it's very hard to close it. You know? so, uh, and that occurs in probably about 15, 20% of patients. It's you know, uh, in, in, in the overall scheme of things. Uh, in addition to that, we have another maybe 10%, 8 to 10% of patients who, as we talked about before, have inflammatory systemic disease. Uh, and again, inflammation is non-discriminatory. It's a, you know, a perfect example of you know, the honey badger effect. It doesn't you know, care. It just wants to get its, get its thing. So rheumatoid arthritis may well present with you know, severe dry eye and, and severe surface damage. That's usually a much more profound form of inflammation. Uh, and much more difficult to control than the former, which is, you know, again, a reactive form of inflammation. So overall, if you add the two together, you're probably talking at about maybe 20% of dry eye patients. Maybe if you really, depending on where you are and the type of environment, it might be as much as 25%, uh, which, you know, to me, you know, again, if I was a, uh, a company that made an anti-inflammatory uh, I would, uh, you know, I re rejoice, you know, that's a massive number of patients that, you know, can use an anti-inflammatory. Um, we have, we have two different types of anti-inflammatories I should probably mention. Uh, we have the uh, anti-inflammatories that uh, are targeted specifically to dry eye. Uh, there are, is current, there is currently one approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It's called Lafitagrass. That's trade name is Zydra. Uh, and it blocks T cells, which are inflammatory cells from adhering to the surface. When inflammation occurs, one of the things that happens is a, uh, a set of uh, anchoring molecules are uh, propagated on the surface. So you end up with an overexpression of uh, this molecule called ICAM, intracellular adhesion molecule. And what this drug does is it kind of acts like ICAM without actually being attached to the surface. So it blocks the T cells adhesion point, so it can't really adhere and it shuts down uh, inflammation. The second drug that's approved by the US Food and Drug Administration just recently got approved. It's called Isuvis uh, by a company called Kala. Uh, and what makes it interesting is that it is a, a traditional anti-inflammatory or a steroid-based anti-inflammatory, but it's the only one that's approved for the signs and symptoms of dry eye because it actually uses a technology that increases its effectiveness without increasing the concentration, making it a safe drug for limited use. Steroids should never be used for long-term use, uh, even under doctor supervision, except in the rarest circumstances, and there are some circumstances where they should be, uh, but this is designed for up to four times a day for up to two weeks use uh, and gives the patient control of their own symptoms. It, you know, they consider it a rescue medication uh, which indeed it is, because it can shut down the inflammatory cascade. So, you know, so those are two examples of, of you know, modern state-of-the-art uh, anti-inflammatory meds that work really, really well. One of the strangest causes of dry eye is demodex. Have you uh, explained that? And, and have you ever shown the demodex to your, any of your patients, any of those no. mites? Well, I'll tell you, the stuff of nightmares, my friend, the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> so, so, for, 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 your, for your viewers um, who are not familiar with Demodex, Demodex are, are, are what we call ubiquitous. It means they're, they're pretty much everywhere. Uh, 
uh, if you're over about 60, 65, you know, nearly 100% of the population has demodex. They're microscopic mites. Uh, they can be seen with a microscope quite easily. There's different forms of them. There's a folliculorum and uh, brevis and uh, probably other species as well. Uh, the entomologists actually categorize them by DNA uh, and uh, they're not directly transmissible. In other words, you're not going to uh, uh, you know, get it from uh, you know, kissing somebody. Uh, one of my earliest um, lessons in being cautious about what you say to a patient came when uh, a, one of my patients had herpes uh, of the eye, herpes of the cornea, a herpes infection. And, and uh, I said, um, you know, you have herpes. And many people immediately associate herpes with you know, uh, sexual activity, which was not the case here. Uh, but he immediately, you know, uh, added one and one and came up with eight. Uh, and he said, he started to cry. I mean, he started to whimper. And I said, what's wrong? I, I said, don't worry, we can treat it. And he said, I think I gave it to my, I could have given it to my girlfriend. I said, no, 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 you wouldn't have given this to your girlfriend. He said, but we were doing butterfly kissing. And my mind started racing. I had no idea what butterfly kissing was at that point. And I, you know, I thought it was something perverse or something that I, you know, as a, as a New Yorker being exposed to everything perverse, I thought I know everything, but I didn't know what it was. It turns out that it's fluttering your eyelashes together, which is, you know, so I, you know, I would have said, yeah, you could have given it to her. No, I, I wouldn't have said that. But uh, so anyway, so I learned, um, you know, I learned, uh, you know, that you, you, know, you have to be very, very careful. So when you say to a patient, you know, you have demodex, you know, and you, you know, and you have these, these ugly mites, uh, you know, crawling around on your lashes, you know, some patients don't, re don't react well to it. So you have to be, you know, somewhat, somewhat gentle about it. Uh, I have never, epilated a lash and shown that to a patient for the reasons I just kind of shared with you. However, uh, and, I'll, and I will share this as an example of the modern world. Uh, I had a patient who came in who had self-diagnosed courtesy of Google's assistance uh, that she had demodex. And not only had she self-diagnosed, and she did have demodex, by the way, uh, which she proved uh, both to herself and to me, uh, she had epilated, uh, be removed one of her lashes uh, and used an USB microscope, which you can purchase on Amazon for, you know, 50, 60 bucks uh, and taken videos of it. And she took out her phone and she showed me her own Demodex, which I thought, you know, now suddenly- That's impressive. That's impressive. <laughs> no, the role- Reverse. Certainly, I was grossed out by her demodex instead of the other way around. So I said, "Yes, you definitely have demodex, and you know we can we we can manage it." So, uh, so th th these days, you know, sometimes you don't even, you don't even have to do the uh, the patients already figured out what's wrong. You just have to help them figure out how to fix it. What do you feel is the best treatment for demodex? Uh, actually, you know, there's something exciting coming. Uh, you know, tea tree oil. Uh, has been in use for quite some time. We use a, a gentle form of it. Uh, again, I have no uh, financial relationship with Aiko. I keep mentioning their products, but you know, I, I, uh, I'm not paid to do so. But they have a gentle tea tree formula, which is what we typically use. You don't really need a high concentration. A company called Biotissue makes something called Claridex, which is much stronger uh, than that, and I think probably a little bit too strong. But there's a company called Tarsus, which is uh, currently in clinical trials uh, for a, a medication specifically for Demodex. 
my expectation it'll be out within probably a year. Uh, it uh, targets the Demodex as you would, you know, any type of mite very directly, very safe uh, from uh, initial reports. The data is very, very impressive. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, going to be a game changer. Uh, Demodex, you know, from a clinically relevant point of view uh, is underestimated in many patients, but overestimated impact in others. You know, I, I, there are obviously patients we can see on just simple examination have, you know, fair amount of demodex. They have these collarettes or uh, cylindrical dandruff on their lash uh, margins, plus they have irritation and other issues and dry eye sometimes occurs with that as well. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, it's a silent disease. It should still be managed, especially when we have a new medication that'll do it safely. One of the issues with, um, uh, with uh, tea tree oil is a recent paper suggested that it can be toxic to the meibomian glands. Again, single paper, uh, I'm not hanging my hat on it, but it's certainly something to consider. Well, that brings us to technology to the eye. And one of our favorites is my, my, my bomian gland, uh, taking a picture of it or my biography. Can you explain about that and the importance of it and how it could help us uh, with treating patients? Yeah, uh, my biography is great. Uh, it's a great technology and it's a very, very important technology because otherwise you're uh, trying to assess something it would be like trying to determine whether a bone is broken without an X-ray, uh, and uh, you know certainly you can do that by palpation uh, if you're a skilled palpator, uh, but you're not going to know the extent of the break and you know whether it's you know complicated, whether there are bone shards, and you know so imaging is extremely helpful from a diagnostic point of view, and as I mentioned before. Uh, this is a chronic progressive disease, and uh, as patients lose more and more glands, uh, the, the problem becomes worse and, and even more progressive. Plus, there are nuances in, in looking at the image. You know, I remember uh, I was on staff at uh, North Shore University Hospital, which I think now is part of Northwell or some other big conglomerate, and we used to make uh, rounds, you know, occasionally with the residents. I was there, you know, for every cornea clinic for many years, uh, and I remember we would go to the neuro floor, and the neuroradiologist would look at, you know, a brain MRI, and he, he'd be reeling off anatomy, and I'd be looking at it. It looks like, you know, it looks like a bowl of breakfast cereal. You know, I could, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell the nuances, but I can look at my biography now, uh, and I can, you know, talk about, you know, distal dilation of the ducts. I can talk about convolution, you know, of, uh, of the glands. I can, you know, I can talk about blockage lost glands, you know, inflammatory conditions. So there's a lot of subtle nuances that a good uh, mybography device will on, on, on reveal or unravel. Uh, in addition from, to uh, diagnosing the condition and assessing the severity of it, from a communications point of view, it's invaluable because, you know, if I, if I was a patient, you know, and I had a problem, the more I knew about the problem, the more empowered I would feel to be able to address the problem, and the more uh, I think comfortable I would I would uh, be with the uh, with the doctor who was sharing that information. You know, it's a it's a 
empowering two-way street. You know, it, it's a bonding experience. My biography is, you know, a way of assessing the root cause of most dry eye, or certainly a major contributing factor. Technically, all it is is essentially an imaging system that uses infrared, uh, so that it highlights the gland and the gland structure, which is underneath a very, very thin layer of tissue on the inside of the lids. So the lids have to be everted or flipped. Uh, those of you who went to high school with uh, friends like I had in high school know what, you know, flipped lids look like us, you know, I had friends running around scaring people in grade school and high school. Uh, but There's it's always not a kid painting. in every class. Yeah, there's always a kid in every class. <laughs> Howard, Howard Morgan was my, was my <laughs> nemesis. I'm sure he's a banker today. I just have that, I have that feeling. But uh but yeah, you know, and, and patients get nervous about it. It's not painful, you know, especially when a, a tech uh, gets good at it. It's, you know, quick and simple. A number of good my, my biography devices on the market, you know, there's the Oculus Keratograph 5M, there's the uh, uh, Antares from um, uh, Luminous, there's, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of it. There's a, bu there's a bunch, I can go through an hour de description probably to, you know, for no real, real value, but we do have a lot of technology that's helpful. And some of it also measures other things like tear stability and, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, what else? Lipid layer thickness in the case of, uh, uh, in the case of the whip of you too, from, from site science, I'm sorry, tear science. So yeah, a lot of interesting technology. At Allegan Eye Care, their goal is to protect and preserve vision. It's not just what they do, but it's who they are. They've been creating innovative products and services for providers and patients for over 70 years, and they continue to push the boundaries of what's possible in eye care each and every day. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven vision edge. What percentage of gland loss do you think you need before dry eye gets so severe? Or you might be thinking about a scleral lens even, a special type of contact lens that's like a cup that holds moisture. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's a great question. I, I, I think there's correlation between gland loss and severity. But it's really interesting, uh, Carrie. You know, it's some patients are so stoic. Uh, you know, they're almost martyr-like, where they absorb the discomfort and they don't want to bother the family or bother people with it. And you know, you look at the glands. I had a woman uh, on Tuesday who had virtually no glands. I mean, if she had five percent of her glands left, this was a forty-four-year-old woman. Uh, you know, intense computer user and you know, using you know, stuck in front of computers for many, many years absolutely miserable. And you really had to tease away at it before she, uh, um, you know, really admitted to how miserable she, she was. I have other patients um, who have, you know, almost normal looking structure, uh, and yet they uh, are horribly miserable. Uh, you know, so it, it really is, is quite variable. But as a general rule, you know, if you showed me a mybography image, I could probably give you a reasonably good estimate of, of misery, especially if I had it combined with non-invasive breakup time, which is a, a measure of tear stability. The, the other, you know, it's kind of the small elephant in the room because very few people have this technology is interferometry, which measures lipid layer thickness, basically the thickness of the oil slick 
on top of the tear foam, you know, the roof, if you will, the thickness of the roof. And interferometry for me is very, very telling, both in terms of uh, how functional the meibomian glands are, in other words, how much lipid are they producing? Is there enough lipid to create a cohesive, coherent barrier? Uh, and number two, the quality, because, you know, it gives you an indirect measure of quality of the lipid as well. But we had a young uh, girl who's probably, I would guess, maybe 14. Uh, family was vegan uh, for religious reasons, I believe. Uh, and uh, so she was completely absent uh, essential fatty acids from her diet or, you know, certainly EPA. Uh, and her lipid levels were, you know, about 15 nanometers. Now, normal is probably about, you know, 80 to 90 nanometers, you know, would be ideal. So you're talking about almost no lipids being produced. And this kid was couldn't even stare at a computer screen. I mean, that's how bad it was. How about uh, some advanced technology like a keratograph? What does that tell us? Yeah, the, the keratograph, uh, you know, is kind of a Swiss army knife. Uh, you know, again, the anteriors, the, kerat the keratograph. So it gives us mybography. We can use it for mybography. Uh, we can use it for non-invasive breakup time, we can, uh, which basically is a measure of tear stability. It just measures how rapidly the tears begin to fall apart uh, and cut color codes it. So we can see, you know, areas of red versus areas of yellow versus areas of green. Uh, we have, we can measure tear meniscus height very easily. In other words, instead of having to do it in a slit lamp and estimate or, you know, narrow the slit lamp, it literally, you can uh, assess it very easily. Uh, redness index is another uh, useful tool uh, to assess the aesthetic benefits of what you're doing. Uh, and it has a number of other things. It's capable of uh, a measure of tear viscosity uh, by looking at, at flow of particles within the tear. So these, these advanced instruments uh, are expensive. You know, they're not, they're not inexpensive. You have to, I think, uh, be interested in dry eye and committed to it, uh, you know, to want to buy it, although they do have other functions as well, which, you know, which would replace other instruments. Uh, but they can be, you know, for me, I would literally, it would be like flying a plane, uh, you know, with sitting backwards with my eyes closed if I, if I didn't have the instruments. That said, there came a time a couple of years ago where I realized that looking at the patient and speaking to the patient gave me enough information to already have a good idea of what was going on and formulate a treatment uh, approach with the equipment validating what my thoughts were successfully about 95% of the time. But without the technology, I probably never would have gotten to the point of Zen, you know, where I was like, oh, I know what's wrong, you know? So, uh, you know, th that now at that point, it's great because now I can d delve deeper. But sometimes the technology with that, you know, the cancer patient I mentioned before, conflicting information, which led to literally a, a whole new way of looking at what I was doing, you know, so it's, it really is invaluable. Are you a fan of dry eye questionnaires? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I guess this is the time to fess up. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I think when you're starting out in dry eye, you know, as a clinician, I think dry eye questionnaires are very helpful because they're standardized. You know, the, what, typically what we'll use is a speed or an OSDI. Uh, and so it, it gives you a good assessment of the patient's experiences. Uh, as you become a more skilled examiner, uh, it becomes 
good at documenting where they're at and then uh, assessing the benefits of your therapy. Because obviously if the patient's doing better, they're gonna score better on the questionnaire. But I think if you, if you, when you get to this Zen point, just the conversation you're having with the patient, you know, I, I, um, <laughs> I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a household where, uh, you know, my father was, uh, you know, kind of a, a very judgmental, you know, kind of father. I mean, not judgmental in a, in a bad way, but, you know, he seemed to know, he, he had a clairvoyant ability to know uh, when I had a test. You know, and he would <laughs> he'd come home and so he'd, he'd say, how did you do on your, on your spelling test or whatever test I had? And I, and I was you know, puzzled, like, how the heck did he know I even had a test? And, you know, if I, if I didn't get 100, if I had like a 98, he would, you know, he would say like, and it was worse for my brother. You know, my brother's nemesis was a kid named Mark Levin. So he said, so, uh, so he got a 98, huh? He said, so what did, what did Levin get? And, you know, my brother would like, you know, you hear like dog-like whimpering. We didn't have a dog at the time. And he'd say, you got a hundred, you got a hundred. And my father said, you couldn't get a hundred. You know, when I'd come home and, you know, I, and I'd say, dad, I got a hundred. You know, I wasn't, the, you know, it wasn't the older sons. So I wasn't the favorite son. So he said, oh, so you had an easy test. Yeah. Like, when I took chemistry, he said, have you memorized the periodic table yet? I said, why would I do that? It's a table. He goes, what kind of course are you taking? You know, it's like, so, and, and I, you know, I, it scarred me, you know, it's like, I, so I never felt like anything I did was, you know, was good enough because it never was really good enough for him. So, you know, I have a great tech and, uh, and I, <laughs> and, uh, you know, my tech says, okay, the patient's doing great. You know, you, it, you work miracles. She's wonderful. And I'd walk in, I go, oh, so I hear you're doing really well. I'd look at, you know, the, the, the electronic health record and I'd start looking at some of the data and this creeping sensation is, I haven't done enough. I haven't done it. And I started saying, okay, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? And, it, you know, at that point, there wasn't a lot to do next because I'd already, you know, been successful at it. So I finally said, okay, this is craziness. You know, this neurosis is, you know, is going to kill me. So I started asking patients, okay, on a scale of one to five, you know, with five being like super comfortable and one being absolutely miserable, it was actually one to 10, you know, where would you be? And most of the patients would say, oh, I'm, I'm about an eight to a nine now. So some would say they were 10, they were super comfortable, you know, and where were you when I first saw you? And they would typically be, you know, anywhere from a one to a three. So after, you know, a, about two months or three months of that, and I realized that most of the patients were, you know, really doing well, I kind of, you know, said, okay, dad, leave me alone. I'm, you know, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing okay here. And then, you know, I, I, started to realize the easiest way to figure it out is how are you feeling and how are you compared to when I first saw you? And I will tell you that, you know, 98 out of a hundred patients will say literally no comparison. My life is completely different today than it was when I first saw you. They may not be perfect. They may not, I'm still not done, but, you know, and that kind of really validated me. So, um, you know, the question of using a questionnaire, questionnaire, for me at this point, we take questionnaires, we, we, we gather the information. I usually glance at them, but I don't really, you know, absorb them. I'm much more interested in how the patient is doing, you know, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, you know, uh, light, you know, life-to-life, you know, how they're doing. How about tear film analysis, looking at the different strips, fluorescein, rose bagel, lysamine green? How does that help you? Do you use it? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I uh, don't use lysamine green as much as I used to, I'll, I'll admit it. I you know, still use it. It's, you know, we have it in the office and I do use it. Uh, fluorescein we use on, on pretty much every patient, almost every visit. 
uh, fluorescein, for those who don't understand what it is, is it's a molecule that fluoresces, that glows green. It's an orange dye that glows green when you expose it to blue light and energize it. And in areas that are damaged, uh, it will absorb into the damaged tissue and it'll highlight the damage. So it basically makes, you know, it enhances your ability to see uh, surface damage and issues. Plus, it also uh, mixes with the tears so you can see how stable the tears are. Uh, when patients have, you know, clearly when they have a lot of fluorescein staining of the white portion of the eye, the conjunctiva of the eye, uh, I typically will use glycerine green because often we get keratinization, you know, basically, uh, you know, skin-like changes of that tissue. This, the tissue becomes hardened, I guess is a good way of putting it. Uh, and the patterns are different. You know, we see different types of damage and it assesses uh, different things. So we do use vital stains uh, a, a fair amount. In fact, you know, again, with fluorescein all the time. Uh, I don't do Shermer testing. Shermer testing uh, is taking a strip of filter paper and sticking it in the person's eye, usually with anesthetic, because uh, it doesn't really tell me very much. Uh, I don't measure uh, osmolarity except during clinical trials or really unusual cases. I think it's helpful. I think it'll be much more helpful when the uh, tier lab who manufactures the uh, primary osmolarity device comes out with their new discovery, which also measures inflammatory markers and osmolarity becomes a, uh, an analog or a surrogate for dilution because, you know, knowing that there's inflammatory markers present in the tears doesn't tell you a lot, you know, how diluted are those, you know, how severe is the inflammation uh, that becomes much more important. Uh, and I, as you know, as you probably can tell from what I just said, I don't uh, typically measure MMP9, which is a non-specific inflammatory marker. It doesn't take uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, mental horsepower to look at an eye and go, that eye's inflamed. Uh, and, uh, you know, getting a secondary non-qualified uh, assessment isn't very helpful to me. How about evaluating the lid position? Oh, you know, that's, yeah, it's funny. Yes. Uh, um, lid closure and lid position is very important. And that's another example of you can save yourself a little bit of time by zoning in. Not that I don't check anyway, uh, you know, reflexively, but, you know, in the conversation I have, typically I'll say to a patient, let's step through your day when you wake up in the morning. Is that the best time of day or is that the worst time of day? When a patient says, oh, God, it's the worst time of day. I can barely get my eyes open. I know immediately that their lids are not closing properly. Uh, and, and that could be anatomical. It could be, you know, post-surgical. Uh, you know, it could be any number of things. Uh, but um, I typically will have the patient tilt their head back about 30 degrees, get down lower uh, using a transilluminator, like a little, little flashlight, as you know, uh, and then I'll look for glistening uh, of either the white of the eye, the conjunctiva or the cornea, uh, depending on, you know, how their, their protective reflex works. Um, I also look at just general lid position to make sure closure, apposition, you know, health and quality of the lashes, uh, and also lid margin, uh, you know, basically the flat of the lid, if you will, uh, between the lashes and the, the eyeball itself, you know, there's a flat portion. And I'm looking uh, at the meibomian gland orifices when we stain it uh, with fluorescein or with lysamine green, we'll see uh, a line called Marx's line, which can indicate, you know, poor lid function, uh, as well as looking for blood vessels, which uh, would be indicative of rosacea or ocular rosacea, uh, which is an important factor in dry eye. It's, uh, you know, a, a major cause of dry eye symptoms. So let's turn our attention to management of dry eye. 
What is your first management? And I think I've heard you say this. You like to start off with omega-3s, that you feel that that's very important. So let's start with that. Tell us about omega-3s. How do you like to prescribe them? What ratio do you like to have the EPA to DHA? And uh, is there a specific type, uh, whether it's triglyceride or ethyl ester, does it matter? Yeah, no, yeah, and you know it's great. You know, talking to you, who I know is very knowledgeable in this area. You know, is is great because I think a lot of people, and, and myself included, when I first started out, I was thinking, eh, you know, fish is a fish is a fish. <laughs> you know, of course, of course, you know, and and uh, you know, go to Costco and and get some fish oil. You know, what's the difference? So, um, you know, it's interesting. I approach um, things, you know, very methodically. You know, so yeah, you know, almost structurally. So, and, and I tell patients, we're gonna start off with foundational or conservative treatment and uh, omega-3 fatty acids are number one on that list. In fact, you know, I have a, a handout, a checklist that I give to every patient. And at the top of the checklist is, is, is are omega-3s. And the reason why is, you know, you have to look at cause and effect. Uh, inflammation, uh, you know, to me, in uh, with the exception of the patients who have systemic inflammatory disease is an effect, you know, it's not, uh, it doesn't cause dry eye initially, certainly not by itself, but it's an effect of a failure to maintain homeostatic control. So you get inflammation. Uh, you know, redness is not a cause of dry eye. It's an effect of, you know, quote unquote, dry eye. And I use quotes because it's not really dry eye. You know, so uh, irritation and, you know, burning, that's not a cause of, of quote unquote, dry eye. It's an effect. But my vomiting gland dysfunction certainly is a cause of all the other things. Uh, and, you know, inflammation in, in, you know, in patients with inflammatory disease can be a cause. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, um, not managing uh, flora, staph uh, overpopulation on the lids is a cause and can be an effect as well. So uh, I look at how can I make things work? My bovine glands are probably the single most important aspect of normal function functioning meibomian glands make for a functioning ocular surface environment. And meibomian glands in order to function need certain raw materials, essential fatty acids, which are uh, uh, food elements that are not produced in the body, but have to be taken in as you know, part of our diet, uh, which then do a number of things, whether it comes to building muscle or repair or you know, lubrication or any, you know, any number of other things. Well, the essential fatty acid at least in my opinion, and based on some research that I've done, that is the building block of mybum uh, is uh, uh, e, uh, um, um, uh, EPA, eicosapentaenoic acid. Uh, that's what you get for having a long day. Uh, uh, e, EPA is normally present in, in you know, all fish oil products. Uh, and um, the ratio of EPA is very important because you need a fair amount of it on a, on a regular basis. There was a study a number of years ago called the DREAM study that showed that omega-3 fatty acids uh, in a decent form, and I'll, and I'll explain that in a second, still didn't produce any greater benefit than olive oil did, which made absolutely no sense based on my experience and the experience of a number of other uh, you know, friends and colleagues who are EPA uh, I'm sorry, our uh, omega-3 believers, if you will. Uh, so we actually, uh, you know, did a, a study because I was convinced that it was EPA that was the culprit. They use a two-to-one rather than a three-to-one ratio that I use. So we managed to uh, get our hands on a pure EPA formulation uh, 
uh, and uh, of the 20 patients in this pilot study, 18 of them did not want to go back to the commercial product that we typically use. Uh, and uh, all of the readings that would be indicative of function, normalized function, were much higher with the pure VPA formulation than it was with the commercial formulation. So, uh, you know, again, we couldn't, uh, unfortunately, because of the cost of manufacturing a pure EPA supplement, we couldn't, uh, you know, we couldn't do that, certainly not alone, although I certainly tried. Uh, but EPA is to the meibomian gland uh, what coal is to a coal stove. If you don't provide enough EPA, uh, the meibomian glands are not going to function properly. And in fact, they'll start to shut down. Uh, and when they start shutting down, the oil becomes, you know, uh, increasingly saturated and eventually becomes rancid, as I discussed before. So omega-3s are are number one. Uh, there are a number of products on the market that you know meet the minimum of a three to one EPA to DHA ratio. Uh, those include uh, PRN, Physicians Recommended Nutraceuticals, uh, DE3, and DE, which I don't know if they still make. DE3 is a three-capsule version, and DE was a four-capsule version. Nordic Naturals makes pro-EPA and EPA extra, and they're all good products. Uh, you know, different costs. Uh, PRN tends to be less expensive in my experience. Uh, and it's a very, very good product. There's a, another company I think called Wunavis, Wunavis that also makes a decent product. But uh, patients that come in and say, oh, I take, you know, Dr. You know, Himmelbrand's fish oil and, you know, it's recommended, you know, Dr. Himmelbrand. And I always tell them that it was working for you, you wouldn't be here. Because I think that is the single most important aspect in my in my bag of tricks, I tell patients that when I was going to a desert island and I had one thing to take, it would be EPA. Uh, and the uh, what you mentioned before, which is very important, is that most fish oils are not uh, distilled down into or reesterified into a triglyceride or a natural form. Uh, they're basically brought to a plant, they're pressed, so the oils are collected. They're distilled by mixing them with ethyl alcohol. Uh, which raises the boiling point. The heavy metals drop to the bottom, mercury, lead, the PCBs, the light stuff boils off. The end of the still, you end up with an ethyl ester, which is why people complain of fish burps and indigestion. Uh, you know, fish is you know, fish in the form of an ethyl ester is not digestible by humans very much, so it's not very absorbable either. Uh, and some of the companies, like the ones I just mentioned, will re-esterify it or reprocess it to put it back in the natural form. If you were a bear grabbing salmon out of, uh, out of a river and uh, eating it, you'd be getting uh, a, uh, a triglyceride form of the salmon oil. Artificial tears. You go into the pharmacy, there's racks and racks of different types of artificial tears. Many patients use come in with artificial tears. Like you said, if it was working, they wouldn't be coming in. But what's the role of artificial tears, the preservatives, there's ones with, without preservatives. Where do you stand on artificial tears? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, there's a lot of companies that make artificial tears. There's a lot of good products. You know, I, I certainly can't, uh, you know, blame companies for being uh, inventive and trying to invent a better mousetrap, if you will. Uh, so the artificial tears we typically gravitate towards today uh, are tears that have uh, oil components to them to uh, supplement the lack of lipid produced in meibomian gland dysfunction, since that's the major cause. I know the, the literature, you know, we, I, didn't, I didn't say this when we talked about meibomian gland dysfunction, but the literature says 
86% of all patients who have dry eye have fibromian gland dysfunction. I think it's a gross underestimation. I think it's closer to about 97, 98%, maybe even higher. So, you know, uh, lack of lipid is, is very common. So we use products, uh, Allergan's Refresh Mega-3, uh, Refresh Active Advanced Mega-3, I always get confused by the name, is a non-preserved uh, flaxseed oil containing uh, uh, supplement. And it's palliative. It, it will make you feel better for a short period of time. That just happens to be a really good formulation. Uh, very innocuous, no preservatives. Uh, for most patients, they can tolerate preservatives, especially the mild preservatives like uh, Alcon products, the sustained products generally have milder preservatives, which you know don't cause major problems. But you know, if you can avoid preservatives, you're, you're better off. Uh, hyaluronic acid also works well, uh, Oasis Tears, uh, I don't typically use a lot of it, but you know some patients like it, and uh, I certainly have no issue, uh, uh, no issue uh, with patients that use it. I tell patients the, the least important thing to me are artificial tears, and my goal is to uh, have you come back at some point in the not too distant future and tell me that you're not using artificial tears. When a patient comes in and says, you know, I'm down to, we've just done, you know, IPL and we've done this and we've done that. And they go, I'm down to using, I use artificial tears twice a week. I used to use them every 15 minutes. I'm now using them twice a week. You know, I literally, you know, rejoice, uh, not because I hate the tears or don't want the companies to make money selling them, uh, but, but be, it tells me that, you know, their eyes are functioning normally and they don't need that additional supplement. Hypochlorous acid has been popular over the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years. Do you, is there a place for that? Do you use that in your practice? Yeah, it's a, it's actually number two in the you know ascent, the Epstein hit parade of you know, dry eye uh, dry eye products, uh, and uh, and and it's actually it's a very funny story uh, with you know how this got started. Uh, hypochlorous acid was you know, invented, and you know, I forgot the name of the doctor. It was called but not ringers, I forgot what solution it was called, but uh, it was invented by a doctor years ago as a surgical disinfectant, forgotten about, uh, you know, pretty much. I mean, I think it was probably used, still used as a disinfectant. Uh, and uh, um, a guy named Ron the Jaffe, who had a company called Nova Bay, uh, which was focused on uh, non-antibiotic anti-infectives. He was working at a number of different things, uh, had a brainstorm, and he said, you know, we have patients that have flesh-eating bacteria, and the reason why they lose their, their limbs is because uh, the blood supply is destroyed and, um, and white cells, you know, inflammatory cells can't get into the tissue and shut down, you know, the infection and the inflammation. And he reasoned that if uh, you took what white cells produce to uh, reduce the infection, uh, and infused it into the tissue that you can shut down the inflammatory response and the melting of, or digestion of the tissue. And indeed it worked. And in fact, you know, you go on YouTube, you'll see uh, you know, a number of YouTube videos that show how it's actually saved limbs. Uh, one of my really good friends who uh, I had worked with at uh, uh, Alcon, which was you know, a major eye company on a number of projects, uh, had moved to Nova Bay, you know, and was working with Nova Bay. And he called me up one day and he says, uh, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now with Nova Bay. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And, you know, congratulations. He said, you know, we have this great new thing. It's an eyelid cleanser. Uh, and I immediately yawned and I said, you know, Glenn, don't take this the wrong way, but eyelid cleansers put me to sleep. I think they're overused. I think the eye, uh, you know, that has, uh, you know, blepharitis and inflammation of the lids, 
and meibomian gland dysfunction, which we've been talking about, produces soaps naturally. So you're actually using a, you know, a detergent. He said, no, no, this is not detergent. That's completely new and, you know, whatever. I said, okay, fine. He says, you know, let me send you, you know, a, a dozen bottles, you know, try it out. I, I trust your opinion. Anyway, he sent them to me and uh, they sat on my desk and sat on my desk and sat on my desk, you know, gathered dust. Uh, my wife, who I practice with, who uh, is a, a much smarter clinician than I am uh, and has a, uh, I'm not just saying that, by the way, because she's, you know, holding a gun to my head. I mean, she actually is really uh, amazingly astute. Uh, and uh, I'm away doing a lecture somewhere and uh, I come back uh, and she says, you know, immediately I get accosted. You know, it's not, hi, honey, how are you? She said, what the heck is that stuff that was on your desk? I said, what are you talking about? She said, you know, that, that eyelid cleanser stuff that's on your desk. It was called eyelid cleanser back then. So I said, I don't know, it's an eyelid cleanser. So she goes, she says, it's incredible. I'm using it on these blepharitis patients and they, they love it. I want to order it. And I don't even know who, who, where you got it from and who it's from. Anyway, long story short, uh, it, it, it's a big hit with blepharitis patients. And, you know, I reason that if it's working for blepharitis patients, it may work with my bombing lens dysfunction and dry eye patients. So I started using it tentatively and lo and behold, it's, it's almost miraculous. I mean, how much better they're doing. It took me a while to reverse engineer exactly what was happening, but when patients have meibomian gland dysfunction, it changes the microbiome, basically the flora, the bacteria, uh, the population on the lid margins, and you end up with an overpopulation of staph bacteria. Staph are normally present and they keep worse bacteria away, so they serve a good function, but when you have too many, they do what bacteria do. They continue to grow. They produce toxins, which keep other bacteria away, but we're sensitive to, which causes red eyes and irritation. And they produce digestive enzymes, which all bacteria do as well. The digestive enzyme that's the problem is called lipase, which breaks down lipid. It's since the tear film structure and the evaporative barrier is made of lipid, when lipase gets into the tear film and you blink a little bit and you have salt in the tear film, you create soap, which we see as frothing or saponification. And soap breaks down the tear film even more. When you spray in hypochlorous acid, it A, kills bacteria, B, inactivates the toxins, and C, deconstructs the digestive enzymes, which it naturally does, because that's what it does when the body synthesizes it in white cells in order to fight infection. So we figured that out and we started using it. So I consider hypochlorous acid to be an integral part of managing dry eye patients, because almost all of them have overpopulation of staph bacteria because of alterations in the normal bacterial population in the lid. So simply spraying it on the lids, blinking to spread it, and then allowing it to sit for about 10 seconds and wiping it off uh, can be game-changing. And it's very rapid. The omega-3 takes six to eight weeks to kick in. Uh, the hypochlorous acid is almost instantaneous. You know, Within a day or two, they'll notice a massive difference. So very, very important that people begin to embrace that. Some of them, by the way, have too much bleach it can be irritating, but you know the some of the more popular brands, uh, uh, you know, uh, Avanova's. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Nova Base Avanova is a good brand. High Clear is a great brand, very stable product, uh, and several of the others that are available are quite good. So, does blink training really work? Uh, actually, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, no. Actually, you know, it's funny. I, I. On the, we, we just revised our instruction sheet, which I, I almost wish we did because, you know, like literally every three weeks, something new comes out and I, or I have some other brilliant idea, but we put on the back of it, 
our blink training form. I'm not even sure. I think my wife managed to get the original version of it. And it looks like something we, we smuggled out of, you know, the Ukraine in the 1930s, you know, these round faced people, you know, blinking. And, uh, you know, I, I explain it to every patient. I read the salient paragraph, which is, you know, close your eyes or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it originates from Donald Corp. You know, he was the, the originator of the concept of blink training, which I, I think was probably, uh, you know, associated with uh, rigid lens wear back in the day, the old hard lenses. Uh, and then when he figured out my bombing gland dysfunction, you know, it, it, it kind of, uh, you know, eventually resurfaced there. Now, the reason why blink training is important, the reason why I explain to patients that they should do it uh, is because it establishes normal muscle memory. And I, you know, I, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I grew up in, I tell patients, I grew up in New York City, so I'm not holistic, you know, I'm not like a Californian, uh, you know, who, you know, grew up on granola and like, you know, you know, listening to, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm you know, kind of a nuts and bolts kind of guy. But the reality is, is it turns out I'm, you know, I'm all outcomes focused. Uh, and in this situation, the blink is the most effective way of pumping the lids and expressing my bum. You know, it was designed that way. You know, whether it was a supreme being who you know calculated the the you know the angles, or whether it was evolution and nature, doesn't matter. It, it it works very effectively. So if we can restore normal function, you know, then you actually will start to resume normal. Uh, you know, production of lipids. So I, I, I reinforce blink training. Now I recognize that, and, I, and I, I say, don't do it in the car, you'll get into an accident. Don't do it in front of people, you'll get institutionalized. But, you know, because it's bizarre looking, this constant weird blinking. I say, you don't have to do it every 20 minutes. You can do it every half an hour, even once an hour. But I want to restore normal muscle function. So I do think, I do think it, it has an important role. Some of them are religious about it. I do think there is some correlation with success. Uh, and I do think if we can get something to work naturally, rather than, you know, having to do a procedure, you know, for a thousand bucks, you know, that will the better, you know, so, so blinking is important. And how do you tell them to do it? Uh, I give them a sheet uh, and uh, I basically read, uh, I think, paragraph three. Uh, you know, so, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I don't demonstrate, I know some people, you know, demonstrate that they, you know, go through the motions, but, you know, I'm, I've spent so much time with the patient at that point, you know, the typical new patient has, you know, at least 45 minutes of my time, if not longer, uh, you know, depending on what I have afterwards. And, you know, if it's a budding lunch, I'll sometimes go even, you know, an hour and change. Uh, and, you know, part of that is, you know, instructing how I want them to use things, what I want them to use, complications, you know, I'm, I'm very big on, you know, describing how medications work. I think the more you understand, uh, the more connected you are to the, you know, to the process of getting better. So, you know, I, getting, you know, getting into the mechanics of blink training, I, I probably look like a big goofball. So I don't, I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You 
to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.